1: Hello and welcome to 4th Estate, the media show coming to you from Tuasia on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation and right across Australia on the Community Radio Network. My name's Mariam Chihab. Tonight we're talking leaks and exposés. First we had the Unioil scandal with Fairfax and Huffington Post revealing how the company has corrupted the global oil industry by handing out bribes. And just a few days ago we had the release of the Panama Papers, the world's biggest data leak with news organisations around the world revealing how the rich and famous have used tax havens to hide their wealth. These scandals would not have been exposed without the collaboration between journalists. So tonight we're asking, how do journalists share this story with their competitors? Joining me in the studio is Jonathan Perlman from the UK's Daily Telegraph. Welcome, Jonathan. Thanks. Also in the studio is Wendy Bacon, Contributing Editor at New Matilda. Hi, Wendy. Hi. Nice to be here. Thank you. And joining us on the line from Melbourne is Denim Sadler, editor of Startup Smart, a publication for the startup community. Hi, Denim.
0: Hi, thanks for having
1: me. Remember, if you'd like to get in touch with us through Twitter, you can find us at at 4th Estate AU, or letters, no numbers. A massive leak that came from a law firm based in Panama called Mossack Fonseca has revealed that 11 million documents has revealed more than 11 million documents and exposed the secret financial dealings of some of the world's wealthiest and most powerful. A year-long investigation was led by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists who collaborated with nearly 400 journalists from the world's top media organisations, including the Four Corners team here in Australia. Wendy, what does it mean to finally be able to prove what people have known all along about international corruption?
2: Well, I don't know whether it's, it's proved for the first time, first of all. I mean, this is really – although I don't want to take away from the significance of this story, but actually when you look at what the International Consortium of Journalists has been doing, of um, investigative journalists um, – Uh, they've actually had a series of these major exposés on on global tax. And uh, even a couple of years ago, they did one on Luxembourg. So, you know, I think it's really building this whole understanding of how this industry works. And certainly this is at a a new level. But really, um, I think it's part of a a bigger story and much more attention on uh, multinational tax avoidance avoidance also than there has been uh, maybe a decade ago go. So it's a building process and I think it's also a community education process through journalism.
1: Jonathan, the cynicism around how much change this league can actually bring about, those implicated are already claiming they behaved in line with law. What do you think of this criticism?
3: Well, I think just exposing it in itself will have an impact. Um, uh, you know, leaders around the world and particularly um, um in, in in countries like China and Russia, where a lot of these leaks have come from, you know they might think twice about where they're putting their money in the future. Um, they'll be worried about the risk of of future exposes like this. Um, so I think it's it's going to have that effect, and I think it will also add to the impetus for change in this area. Um, the G20 has been looking at um, international tax avoidance and evasion, um, and it's it's only going to add add to that. So. I, I think it's very significant. Um, um, I hope we get more leagues like this and I think it will definitely add to it to a sort of growing international push for change.
1: Denim, what do you think about this criticism?
0: Yeah, I think that's always kind of the cynical reaction to, to this sort of thing. It's like, oh, we already we already knew it was happening, but I think, yeah, it's obviously huge to have this amount of documents kind of proving it all. And yeah, I think I think like Jonathan says, one of the big outcomes is, Always once there's a big leak, it kind of might encourage other people to come forward that might have information and obviously we're likely to see more more stories like this. So, yeah, it's pretty... Pretty huge for starting the whole discussion surrounding it, definitely.
2: And I think what is new, and perhaps I didn't emphasise enough, is that, like, I, when I was at Fairfax, you know, decades ago, we were doing stories on multinational tax avoidance, particularly involving uh, Kerry Packer at that time, who was a major Australian businessman. But we had the companies, we had information, but we didn't have the actual documents. And what's been happening in the last decade is these massive leaks of actual information, and that applies to both these two big stories that have just happened, and that really takes it to a whole... uh, to a really different level, and so I think it is really significant. I just documents think it's... are
3: probably becoming easier to leak as well. I mean, you don't actually need a brown paper bag anymore. You can have an anonymous USB stick.
2: Yes, that's right. I mean, back in, in that story I was carrying documents around in a case, you know, on a plane. Um, now it is all happening much more uh, electronically. Although in the case of the Unior one, uh, Richard Baker actually did go to Paris, so it's not
1: completely digital. You're speaking, Jonathan, of um, how it's easier for documents to be leaked. So what, what impact do you think this will have on the big law firms and the big corporations who might engage in this shady activity?
3: Well, I'm sure there'll be redoubling efforts to try to prevent it. Um, but hopefully it will encourage um, further further leaks. I mean, I think this law firm is is the fourth biggest in the world in terms of its involvement in um, setting up offshore companies um, I mean, that that fact alone is quite incredible. I mean, that means there are three firms that are bigger than it and this firm's been involved in setting up hundreds of thousands of them. So, um, you know, there's obviously a lot more we'd, we'd like to know about what's going on in this area and it's very difficult. Authorities are limited. Um, you know, that's why these small countries are involved, almost sort of exploiting their own nationhood. Um, so leaks are probably one of the best ways we're going to get there and, and hopefully there'll be more of them.
1: In another huge expose this week, Fairfax Media and Huffington Post revealed how a Monaco company called Unioil Oil used portions of the Middle East oil industry from 2002 to 2012 to benefit Western companies. After a six-month investigation, the media organisations organizations revealed that billions of dollars of government contracts were awarded through bribes. From firms including Rolls Royce, Halliburton, Leyden Holdings, Samsung, and Hyundai. Jonathan, when was the last time an Australian outlet broke global news this huge?
3: Um, it's, a, it's a tough question. It was a big story, um, uh, and and I think some of the, some of the big stories which have had global reach by Australian journalists have often involved Australian correspondents based abroad. Um there was I think it was Carolyn Overington broke the story about the, the oil for, for food scandal in, in Iraq. Um there was also even stories across Southeast Asia, um Australians broke you know, incredibly important stories in East Timor and Indonesia, also um, you know, stories like the, the Papua New Guinea in, in Bougainville, the involvement of, of the sandline mercenaries. Um so, I think a lot I think there have been stories broken by the Australian media, but a lot of the time it's involved Australian media who are already overseas.
1: Wendy, how are sources protected in investigations like this, especially in regards to their identity?
2: Well, I think that's, that's quite a big question and the sort of technologies behind it and all of that sort of thing. But if you go um, on to the Fairfax website and you go actually to this investigation, which is incredibly well presented and set out in much smaller stories, so it's not one great big read, and then you can go there. How do you contact Nick McKenzie, who's one of the key journalists involved in this uh, major expose? Um, they got this story because they are very well known in Australia and they have been been working on latens and corruption, and so that's, I think, how they were identified. Now, on the website sets out how you contact them, what you need to know about how to protect yourself, and of course, you can even go to higher levels in terms of protection. But I think, you know, while that's all said, what is really interesting in this case, and you can also see the video online of this, is that Richard Baker actually got a letter an actual sort of mailed letter um, with it, telling him to put an ad. It was almost like a spy movie, an ad in a French newspaper real estate section and then someone would see that and then contact would be made and then he actually flew to Paris and was outside the Louvre and then the person didn't turn up which was a complete freak out for him he expresses that like to spend that amount of resources it would be a massive deal and then eventually through text messaging and everything he does get to sit down with the person then painstakingly they make contact with other sources and eventually the information obviously comes through in an anonymous form and So I suppose in saying that, obviously for all uh, investigative journalists now, if they're serious, they do need to understand all this protection of sources at an electronic level. But a lot of the old methods, I think, um, still exist as well. And of course, it's always just ultimately important to protect the source. And so that's the responsibility of the journalist.
1: Jonathan, how important then is it to keep a scoop like that under wraps and present it in long form?
3: Um, well, I thought this was terrifically presented. Um, and and I think it showed the significance of, of doing that, of trying to, to keep a story for yourself and, um, and, and, and try to treat it properly. This was a big, complicated story with, with lots of different elements. Um, and they took the time to to sort of sit on it and 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 report it properly. Um, I thought it was really well done, obviously, you can't do that in all circumstances. I mean this was one where they they knew that they had the story to themselves and weren't going to no one was going else, else was going to beat them to it.
1: So in the age of news syndication, do you think the age is receiving the credit it deserves for this story?
3: Um, I think people are very aware that that they've broken this story Um I don't think it got a a great deal of follow-up from from the other Australian media outlets. Um, That often happens due to sort of some extent petty sort of rivalries Um, In fact
2: I saw that um, uh, in The Australian I think Mark Day um, commented that it was boring which I think and and then Stephen Mayne another journalist has had a go at him about that but actually what um, I think it was probably crikey or said anyway apparently in terms of hits it has gone very well for Fairfax so I think um, you're right that they, they have anyway got the credit for it, but the follow-up is perhaps what can let the story die, mm. do you think?
3: Yeah, I mean... Hopefully I,
2: not, but it could it let it die?
3: I think <laughs> the, the police investigations abroad helped it. Um, it gave something for the other media to, to latch onto and media around the world to latch onto um, rather than, than just relying on, on documents that Fairfax was reporting. So I think that's helped kick it along a little bit.
1: You're listening to Fourth Estate, you're with me, Mariam Chihab, and I'm speaking to Wendy Bacon, Jonathan Perlman, and Denham Sadler. The Panama Papers is the biggest collaboration so far from the ICIJ, involving nearly 400 journalists in more than 80 countries and more than 100 media organisations. Journalists are used to hiding information from other journalists in order to be the first to break a story, sometimes at the expense of of the quality of reporting, yet this giant collaboration was pulled off in secret with the news organisations and journalists involved willing to share and collaborate. Wendy, first of all, can you tell us more about the ICIJ, how it works and when it was formed?
2: Uh, it was formed in the late 90s. Um, it initially involved uh, far less than that number of journalists, but certainly journalists in in Australia and all around the world got together because I think there was a recognition, one, that there needed to be a big non-profit initiative to get this sort of collaborative work going. Uh, and secondly, I think because there was a recognition that so many stories now are global and local. Uh, one of their early investiga- investigations involved, uh, involved the privatisation of Water, around the world, which is a story that continues to develop and have ramifications. Another one was illegal tobacco smuggling, and a journalist in Australia who now works at Monash, Bill Bernbauer, played a very key role in that. That was much more probably traditional, investigative journalism, but everybody um, at the ground doing their part of the investigation, then it was filtered up and then written and it, you know, in Washington, probably, um, and uh, published. So it's, they've got quite a long a tradition. Currently, the journalist who's actually managing the ICIJ is uh, Gerard Ryle, who's well known in Australia because he was a yeah, very leading investigative journalist in Australia. is actually Irish. And I think he actually had done a big story uh, called Firepower involving a lot of international tax avoidance and that sort of thing when he took up the job. And I think he had a real interest in this sort of journalism. And I guess how they keep it, I think it really is an interesting thing how you can manage. First of all, it's a big management task. Uh, But secondly, I think to even get into that group, you need to have a record, a really strong ethical record in investigative journalism, whether you're in Ecuador, whether you're in Guatemala or Australia, you come with a record. And I think, I mean, of course, there could always be a rogue person within that, but very unlikely, because I think From my knowledge of journalists, when they're at that level, they're very um, aware of the ethics and an absolute need to keep it confidential. But it's still pretty amazing that it was as confidential as it was, I think, and a a great credit, I think, to them, because it was important to bring it out all around the world in that way. That gives it a bigger chance of having impact.
1: Danim, how significant is this collaboration to you, given that news outlets are competing neck and neck with each other most of the time?
0: Yeah, well, I think it's it's pretty amazing. I think it was 370 journalists or something all kind of working together pretty much and, like, nobody broke the publication date and, yeah, I think it's a pretty amazing testament and probably a recognition to, to these people kind of realising that it, it was more than just journalism and kind of petty media infighting. It was kind of such a huge story and I think it also it also comes down to there wasn't necessarily that much competition within the countries. Like, I think it was three, three publications within Australia that was involved with it. It's not necessarily as big a problem when you're not fighting It's others in the country, but um, yeah, it's just it's just huge to have that many journalists involved in a project and kind of no leaks from within that. And yeah, it's it's a pretty amazing story. The kind of story behind the story is pretty incredible too.
1: And so, do you think this is a watershed moment for mass collaboration in journalism?
0: Um, I, I don't know about watershed moment, but I think it, I think it kind of just proving that it can be done. I don't think I definitely haven't heard of anything on, on this quite this quite bigger scale. So... Um, yeah, I think kind of the fact that it can be done and hopefully we'll see a lot more of it because you don't, you don't often see this sort of investigative journalism nowadays So kind of proving that it can be done in a collaborative sort of way is a pretty huge moment.
1: What do you think, Jonathan? The watershed moment or not? Yeah, I, th-
3: I think for organisations like the ICIJ, I think they'll be pretty pleased to, be see, that, to see that it can be done. Um, I think it's an incredible um, sort of logistical feat to have that many outlets and that many journalists working on a story without it breaking um you know embargoed press releases and documents get put out all the time and the embargoes get broken sometimes accidentally um here's a case where people have been sitting on this for a year investigating it um the fact that it can be done together is 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 you know terrific and um and I, i think it will you know will help build a bit of trust um because the main the main reason that stops this happening is everybody thinks that that everybody else is going to report it before they do. Um, we'll hear everybody's trusted each other, and, and hopefully it'll happen again.
2: I think another thing about the ICIJ is um, that it is a non profit idea, and uh, all the time you know they're putting out information about investigative journalism, information about the importance of public interest journalism. It's actually funded mainly by big foundations in the US, of course. We don't have them to extend here, but, um, and but on the other hand, the journalists in the network actually work for commercial organisations, so or, or public broadcasting ones. So, it's not that there's no money going to be made out of this story, but the real foundation of the work is in the public interest, uh, not for profit, and I think that. Is important, And I think the aim, um, what they will be hoping, is that out of this come more resources so they then move on and uh, deepen their links internationally.
1: A WikiLeaks, WikiLeaks spokesperson has called for the Panama Papers data to be published in full online. But the head of the ICIJ said, we don't want to dump documents on the internet, we want to do journalism. Our philosophy from day one has been to reclaim the journalism. We apply, we apply public interest tests to the documents. Jonathan, what's the merit in reporting the leaks in this way instead of dumping it all online?
3: I think this is a bit much better way to report it than, than the WikiLeaks style, which can be, you know, which verges on irresponsible at times. Um, and, and, and you see that in the hypocrisy even of, of, of Julian Assange's approach where, you know, he, he um, furiously guards his own privacy um, but then is willing to to sort of breach others. I mean, people people are entitled to to a degree of privacy, and and in this case, um, I think it's it's a much more responsible way of handling it. Um, yes, we do have to trust journalists to manage and sift through the information, but that's what journalists are supposed to be able to do. Um, and I think it's it's it it ends up the information is is presented better, um, but it also avoids. The risk which you did have with WikiLeaks, where there were accusations that um, about the public interest involved when it was just a sort of carte blanche leak, particularly with the diplomat, diplomatic cables, um, where you know it was hard to tell in some cases what the public interest was, and when there was a risk of of um, of, of people and innocent people or, or diplomats having their, their careers or personal lives affected. So, I think you know I, I prefer this this method.
2: A lot of all this information also will be published, and uh, obviously there's a massive amount to go through and judgments to be made. I was actually a little bit surprised by WikiLeaks' statement because I thought they'd sort of moved to a position when even they thought you need to go through um, documents before you publish them. But if you go on to the ICIJ site, you'll see that they've already got a huge database uh, where, and they're going to add a lot of this material onto it in May, so that's only six weeks away, and you can actually search countries, you can search names and companies, and then you can even search addresses. And uh, that can be significant because if you're investigating a particular thing that's located in an address, it can be quite handy to sort of trawl through this database. So I don't think it's that they're saying they don't want to publish it, but they're actually yeah, just saying, we need to make that judgment. And uh, I think, yeah, I agree very much. I agree with what Jonathan's saying. Um, that, and I think also what Jared. Right. Is trying to say that this is journalism we're doing. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I think that there was a lot of value in what WikiLeaks did. And at the same time, I also don't know that this would be happening if it wasn't for what WikiLeaks did in really breaking out with massive amount of data. So it's a little bit, it's maybe a little bit grey
1: there. Zenem, so what do you think um, comparing the way WikiLeaks handled the leaks and um, the ICIJ did with the Panama Papers?
0: Yeah, I can completely agree with what Jonathan was saying. I think it's just a much more responsible and safer method to kind of deal with having this huge amount of data that nobody still, nobody knows everything that's in the information. And if you just dump it online, you don't know what you're kind of putting up there or who you're exposing. So I think, yeah, I think with things like this, you have to trust the journalists, and it's kind of 400 journalists involved. It's not like you're placing that sort of trust on one person. And I think they are being quite, quite transparent with the data they have, and I think they've said by. I think it's the start of May. They're going to post the full list of companies uh, that are implicated in it. And then, yeah, I think it's a much kind of it's a much more journalistic way to do it than kind of just dumping this information out there and letting other people go through it. It's kind of looking through it to find what is in the public interest. So yeah, I think it's a it's a much better method of doing it.
1: Cool.
2: I'd just like to say I, I don't want to completely move away from this idea that people can just publish data. For example, there's a thing called detention logs um, that, um, uh, that put out there a whole lot of files um, which have enabled both researchers and journalists to do a lot of stories that they couldn't have otherwise done. So I do think, uh, I wouldn't, I do think that the data people and the open source people have a big role to play in this sort of um, the process as well.
1: You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Mariam Chihab, and I'm speaking to Wendy Bacon, Jonathan Perlman, and Denham Sadler. The Panama Papers is the world's biggest data data leak, 2.6 terabytes to be exact, with 11.5 million files for journalists to sift through. A couple of years ago, going through this information would have taken maybe years and years, and not as quickly as it was done. Denham, you wrote about how an Australian tech company that played um, an indispensable role in the Panama Papers investigation. Can you tell us more about this company and how exactly they helped the ICIJ sift through the data?
0: Yeah, sure. So it was this little kind of Sydney techno- tech company called um, NUX, and they, they've worked with the ICIJ before, and they kind of work with big data analytics and basically what they did is obviously the ICIJ had kind of, oh, I think it was 11.5 million documents and this kind of PDFs and emails and photos. And UX has this software, this kind of smart algorithm that can index all of that and kind of make it searchable to vastly oversimplify it. But um, they pretty much turned it into something where you could Google it. And what then what the journalists did was kind of, they had these lists of the politicians, the criminals and all these other people they wanted to look through in the documents and then using this, uh, Sydney company's technology, they were then able to, pretty much like a Google search, they could search for anyone in those documents. I think the great quote from someone, the the vice president from the company that I talked to was saying it's kind of going from that the really stereotypical kind of pinboards with the wires connecting all the relationships to kind of a quick search on the keyboard that takes a couple of seconds. So it was kind of, yeah, it was a nice little story of how this, this kind of Sydney tech company played their own kind of little role in this huge, huge data leak.
1: And so what do startup companies like this mean for investigative journalism in general, do you think?
0: Yeah, I think kinda just having that extra technology makes kinda takes away the menial side of things. It takes away kind of just the manual labor of sifting through that many that many documents which would just take an unimaginable amount of time if it's eleven point five million. And yeah, having that technology lets them actually get down to the actual hard part of it, the actual journalism part of things, but um, it kind of helps to make this sort of thing possible in this day and age when obviously there's much fewer resources and it's, it's coming from a not-for-profit prof- not agency that's kind of organising it all.
1: So Wendy, it kind of do helps you... facilitate it. Oh, sorry, Wendy, what do you think? I really agree with that. I
2: really think there's a huge future in the collaboration between the open data people and people who can really program and write uh, sophisticated searching tools such as um, maybe this was. I'm very ignorant about it, but I absolutely think that there's a big future in journalists collaborating with the open data people and bringing that together, maybe into some new new whole idea it'll be, but I, I think, yes, and I agree also that... Um, yes, we can all search PDFs and all that sort of thing, but when you get the volume of this information and then being able to link all the relationships and things, it really it does take um, programming skills. And, and while journalists can maybe get some basic scraping skills and uh, basic programming skills and do data visualisation, I think to really go beyond that, you probably at least you know, have to be a serious programmer.
1: And so do you think news organisations will rely more and more on this technology?
2: Oh, definitely, uh, but I think, you know, they've got a certain amount in-house, um, uh, uh, like Fairfax would have, In they do have, I know, data um, journalists, but, but to take it to that other level, and I really we're talking here about masses and, you know, volumes of data, um, and look, I'm just incredibly impressed, I have to say, by the collaboration between um, our computer people too. Like, I know the journalism world better, but I have a little bit of insight into that world as well, and I just feel really optimistic about the fact there's young computer people in all around the world who actually collaborate with each other every day to keep things open source and, and build that culture as well. And I think it's good to to talk about both
1: sides of it, not that I'm qualified to talk about the data side. Yeah. Jonathan, what do you think? Are you optimistic about this relationship between data um, people and journalists?
3: Yeah, I was just thinking about the the ABS data, especially the census data. I mean, we're coming up to another census soon, I think. Um, And the ABS are are terrific at at sort of analysing that data and putting it out to journalists. But um, there's now going scope for for journalists and media companies to do that themselves and to break down the information in ways that they want. So um, I think it's going to open up whole new avenues for stories.
1: Well, that's it from us on Fourth Estate tonight. Thanks to my guests, Wendy Bacon, Jonathan Fullman, and Dennis Sadler. Don't forget, you can subscribe to Fourth Estate on iTunes or SoundCloud or your podcast player of choice. And of course, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook and at 2SCR.com. My name's Mariam Chehab and you can catch us at the same time next week.